Hey now, welcome to the Inside BS Show. Today we've got something really special for you. We're bringing back one of our guests from the past, my friend Sammy Azari. And the reason we're doing it is because this is a perfect case study in what's possible when you hire the right attorney. You see, Sammy works in Chicago, but he's a federal criminal defense lawyer, so he can handle cases all over if they're tried in federal court. And recently there was a case that was in the news that I want Sammy to highlight for us. So Sammy, welcome. Welcome back to the show. Tell us what happened and tell us about the result you got for your client. Yeah, so thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Uh, so yeah, this case was uh, it's a federal criminal matter, a white collar fraud case that was in the Northern District of Illinois here in Chicago. And I was representing a financial advisor that was charged with a multi-million dollar fraud uh, against her clients over a span of about eight to nine years. Uh, so she was, you know, essentially facing uh, 97 years, uh, 97 months. I'm sorry, in uh, in federal prison, and our goal was to reduce that as much as possible. So we had a sentencing hearing uh, last week. We had a, a pretty good result. The client was happy. Prosecution was happy. Judge seemed pleased. Obviously, he's the one that handed on the the, the sentence, and so we walked away thinking that. You know, everyone was served in this case. All right. So 97 months is, that's like 10 years, right? If you, if you figure it out, how many years is that? Yeah. 97 months would be, if I'm doing the math real quick in my head. Uh, I think it's 10 years. That is eight years. Eight years. Okay. So it's eight, 97 months is eight years. And instead this person was sentenced to uh, how many months? Say that again. 54 months. 54 months and with good behavior, you know, assuming that this person behaves themselves when they're in prison, how many, you know, how many months ballpark it would, would it be that she would be in? So she's going to serve 85% of that sentence and she'll, so she'll be in 46 months. Wow. Okay. That's, that's fantastic. So you basically were able to, to cut it in half from what the government was asking. What was the, what do you think was the key thing that, impress the judge enough to to go with this you know to go with this lower uh lower sentence compared to what the what the you know the prosecutor was asking for yeah so in this case you know some of the aggravating factors were that it took place over such a long period of time and we're talking about 3.9 million dollars it's a lot of money over people that had entrusted her with their money uh, people that she had built a relationship with in that community and people that thought she was going to take good care of them a lot of people lost their retirement money. You know, they had to keep working. Some of them were about to lose their homes. So there was a lot of aggravation there. One of the things we discovered as we was, as we were working on the case was that uh, there was a, a huge gambling addiction that we were unaware of because our client didn't bring it to our attention. So when we were looking at the financials, there was a direct line between the deposits into her bank, her her account from her clients to you know, the three casinos that she essentially squandered the money in. So the gambling addiction, because it's considered a disease, was a mitigating factor then. That's what the judge the, the judge used as, as the reason to lower the sentence? So it was. And interestingly enough, a gambling addiction is actually not a mitigating factor under the United States sentencing guidelines. But one of the things that we argued in an effort to get around that, because that was the government's main argument, is that this actually shouldn't be considered mitigating. And how we got around that is pursuant to the 3553 factors, 
uh, the judge can take into account personal characteristics of the defendant. So we got around the uh, you know the guideline regime and just basically said that this is a characteristic of the defendant that needs to be taken into account. And we also said that you know that particular guideline, uh, you know, it's it's no longer mandatory. It's now just advisory. So the judge can take it into account as mitigating if he deems fit. So, Sammy, let me ask you this, because I know the people who are watching, the people who are listening to this are asking it of themselves. So it's it's my job to ask this. Why on earth didn't your client disclose to you that she had been taking this money and gambling it? Did you ask her when she came in your office, what did you do with the money? Well, yeah, we, we did, but we certainly didn't get the answer <laughs> that we discovered in the future. And I, I think part of it, sometimes clients don't want to disclose things like that. They either haven't come to terms with it, which is what, what the situation was here. Uh, but number two is sometimes they're just too embarrassed to tell you. So there's, there's a multitude of reasons as to why they might conceal certain things from their lawyer. But in this case, thankfully, we were able to discover it. But the only reason we discovered it is because of the material tendered by the government. And once we had a chance to review it, we confronted our client. And only at that point did it become clear to us that there was a serious gambling addiction. And that explained the entire scheme. Okay, so take us inside the room where it happens, uh, if, you, if you will, right? You're, you're under an obligation to zealously represent your client. So you want to you want to have you want to know everything so that you can do the best job in in a case like this and you look at your client and you say can you give us anything that would be helpful to explain why you were doing this and your client tells you what yeah they they don't give you an explanation um, they, <laughs> they don't say anything <laughs> yeah they don't give us anything we can use right so um, you know, initially it becomes a, you know, the, the investigation is, well, what happened? Are you guilty of this? And when it becomes clear that this isn't a who done it or what happened, then it's a matter of trying to explain it. And you have to explain it in a way that some people might be receptive to your client's situation. And so you look for certain things. Does this person have an alcohol problem? Do they have a drug problem? Do they have a gambling problem? Is there a family issue? Do they have a rough upbringing? Uh, so those are the things that we tend to look for. But, you know, if our clients aren't telling us what their history is or what they're going through, you know, it limits our options as to how we can help them. OK, now, in this particular case, uh, based on the court records, share with us what the entire uh, sentence is. So obviously, time in a federal prison. What else does your is your client responsible for doing as a result of this? What, what do they have to do? Yeah, well, so she's going to have to pay restitution back. That's the big one. And the judge made very clear during the sentencing because there were other victims that made statements at the sentencing hearing, which were quite poignant. But he made very clear that he wanted to reduce the sentence in an effort to give her an opportunity to get out earlier and get back to work so she can maybe make an effort to start paying these people back. But he also made clear to the victims on the call that it would be very unlikely if they were to get paid back anything, if anything at all, and so that they shouldn't hold out any hope that they're going to recover anything. And that's how it is with most multi-million dollar frauds. When you become a federal convicted felon, your job opportunities are very limited. Your salary opportunities are very limited. And so given that, judges know that this is essentially a, an imaginary figure that's going to follow somebody around for the rest of their life. And it's just, it's, 
never going to be paid back. So in that case, when it comes to restitution, what happens if this person gets out and they start uh, they start a successful business and they're able to pay that back? Is there a way to go in then and like amend the record to say that full restitution was made? Well, so it, it'll it'll be it'll be tracked, and yes, there will be a determination made whether they've paid uh, the restitution or not. Uh, but I will say I've never really experienced anything where somebody's had to come back and say, "Hey, I've I've paid this in full." <laughs> it's just you know the, the typical fraud schemes that just never happens. Yeah. All right, Sammy. So. When this happens to someone, if they're if they're if they find themselves sitting across from you or sitting across from uh, one of the one of your peers in the federal defense bar, and they you know they they've they've committed a white collar crime, no violence involved. What is your guidance to them? The person who's going to call your office today, who's going to come in. What's your what's the best advice you can give them when they come in and sit down with you? Be open and honest with me. Tell me everything. Don't hold back. Anything we talk about is privileged and confidential. It's not going to get out past that room. So you know you need to disclose everything to me, and you need to let me be the one that determines what's useful and what's not, what's relevant, and what's not. So don't think that holding anything back is going to benefit you in any way because it's not. Well, and in this case, you were able to get a fantastic result in spite of your your client withholding the information that you used to get the great result, which which to me, it just it just absolutely blows me away. Have you have you had other cases where uh, where you actually had to dig for uh, mitigation factors that your client didn't disclose to you, or is this the first one? This is the first one that I've had where it was just so blatant, just an adamant denial of anything like that. But in most cases, they don't hold back, but they will answer the questions when you ask them. They won't volunteer the information, but if you peel back the onion enough, you'll get what you want. This is a situation where we peeled back all the way and found nothing, and it was only when the government disclosed certain information to us that we were able to see what was truly going on. Now, is there a lesson to be learned from this for other criminal defense attorneys? Because I know, listen, I know a lot of people whose definition of zealous representation wouldn't have been to dig into their own client's background and discover information that their own client uh, didn't disclose to them, right? I know a lot of attorneys who say, listen, zealous representation, I can only do, I can only work with what I got, right? I can only do what my client is willing to help me do. And I think you really went a step beyond. I know you don't see it that way. You see it as part of your job. Is there, is there a lesson for lesser experienced criminal defense attorneys to learn from this? I'd say you keep digging till you find something helpful. Uh, you know, you should never just you, know, you should never just you know resign yourself to just thinking that your client's going to get a horrible sentence or there's nothing mitigating. Every one of us has something mitigating about us. I don't care how rough you're. You know, I don't care what you did for a crime. I don't care what you're charged with. I don't care what you're facing. There's always something about you that's mitigating that the judge should consider and that the defense attorney should look for. All right, Sammy. So. If if there's somebody out there right now that is uh, that is looking to uh, connect with a criminal defense attorney and they've and they've committed one of these uh, types of crimes, a white collar crime, no no violence involved, 
give us what they should be looking for in an attorney. Let's say, let's say they're in a they're in another jurisdiction. What are the qualities they should look for in an attorney um, if they've committed a crime similar to this, some type of financial fraud or other white collar crime? Yeah, look for someone that has experience in federal court handling financial fraud cases. You know, look for people that have you know, tried cases in federal court. Look for people that have had cases dismissed in federal court. Look for people that have. <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, it prevented your client from being charged in federal court. So it's it's not just that you want to look for a criminal defense attorney and one that dabbles in federal court that primarily practices in state court. You need someone that's seasoned in federal court to handle a case like that. All right. Now, if you are looking for a great criminal defense attorney, I can recommend one for you. The guy sitting right in front of me, give Sammy a call at 312-626-2871. 312-626-2871. Sammy, congratulations on a fantastic result. Really well done. Uh, I know that the system only works because of people like you. So thank you for all you do. Great result here. Congrats. Hey, thank you so much, Dave. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. All righty, folks, that'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. Remember, give Sammy a call at 312-626-2871, 312-626-2871. We'll see you right back here again tomorrow with another fantastic interview. Until then, here's hoping you make a great living and live a great life.